Welcome to the 24th episode of Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, um, and I'm joined today by one of our producers uh, who has been behind the scenes for the last uh, the last couple of weeks, helping us with everything with regard to the show. We thought we'd do something a little different for this episode, uh, and we're going to spend the next 90 minutes to two hours talking about Elon Musk uh, and his his twins that he's having with Siobhan Zillis, who's formerly a, uh, a, a VC as well. I know a number of people in the ecosystem know her. And so thought we'd have our resident paternity expert, Rashad, come on to uh, to weigh in. So Rashad, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, I'm glad uh, 23 episodes in and this is finally what it took to get me on the uh, the pod. So happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, how did I, how did I do deadpanning that? Uh, we are not going to, I am not going to touch that topic with a, uh, with a 10 foot. Pole. I was ready um, to do it. Yeah. 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 It is an interesting, I mean, I don't know. People seem outraged by it because it's like a direct report situation or like, a uh, I don't know, but she, and she's on the board. So it's certainly a little, uh, unusual. I have to think people knew, but I don't know. This feels like something that is, it gets people very up in arms because it's Elon Musk and, uh, and it's just more kind of absurdity. I think this is his ninth kid, uh, which is, uh, you know, he's very prolific. Um, right. But yeah. Yeah. This feels like better material to be covered using short form sketch comedy as opposed to. Uh, yeah, that's right. I think you're people will know you from your TikToks. Uh, maybe that's where we uh, we make the jokes. I'm not sure. I'm not sure serious commentary on this is our uh, two two uh, unmarried guys without kids. I'm not sure we're the uh, we're the appropriate audience to be weighing in on this subject. Someone tweeted after Miami Tech Week, the Red Point TikTok guy. That's uh, my official title here. Is that right? Have you changed your LinkedIn? Uh, not yet. No. The Red Point TikTok guy. That's your new branding. Well, what you're actually going to hear on this episode uh, was a conversation Zach and I had with uh, with Frank Rotman, who. Uh, was kind of one of the quasi co-founders of Capital One. Uh, he was he was certainly very early on there, and then uh, and then he has now founded QED, and uh, which is a fintech investment firm, one of the best investment firms in the world. He's been a regular on the Midas list. Uh, I think this year maybe he was forty five or something on that, and uh, he's now, despite being a very hardcore kind of uh, fintech investor and very uh, skeptical of the DeFi space, he has gotten uh, down the crypto rabbit hole, if you will. And so we talk through uh, what he believes in about the ecosystem, uh, where he thinks there's bullshit, um, his history with Capital One, what works, what doesn't. So definitely a uh, interesting conversation from someone that I, I think is very well versed in in all the stuff related to fintech and what can actually be solved here, and also is I think cautiously optimistic. He says he's uh, agnostic or, or indifferent to it, but he also has a uh, an NFT profile picture, so I'm not sure that's actually the case. But uh, <laughs> trust trust people will enjoy uh, uh, that conversation. Frank, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. So I know we've been trying to schedule this for a while, but uh, given your background, I uh, thought you would be someone that could help uh, help level set us or give some perspective on what's going on in the crypto universe. Both uh, because you spend a lot of time investing in, uh, I think they call it tradfi, uh, or traditional finance world, as well as you came from the traditional finance world once upon a time, helped build one of the biggest financial institutions we have today. So. Um, first, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and uh, yeah, entertaining us with with some questions here. Uh, happy to be here. 
So maybe for people that don't know, maybe can, can you just give a little bit of uh, your background um, and what led you to investing and having a uh, NFT as your Twitter profile? Sure. Uh, so my my history in in finance is almost three decades old at this point. So I've been working in the, the business world for about 29 years, uh, all of it in the world of finance in one form or fashion. Uh, my alma mater uh, was Capital One. So I was one of the original guard before it was even Capital One, uh, helped build it from the ground up, played a variety of roles there that ranged from building businesses from scratch that the company needed to fixing some of the big businesses uh, when they were broken. Um, also spent a lot of time uh, with the, the foundation of what it took to be a bank and what it took to be a good lender. So I was actually the first chief credit officer of the company before it even had a title. So a lot of the core infrastructure of what it took to lend, uh, what it took to navigate uh, these weird things called recessions that happen about every eight to 10 years. Um, you know, putting the infrastructure in place uh, for, uh, you know, credit risk and underwriting, put, putting the infrastructure in place for collections, recoveries, fraud, a lot of the risk areas. So my background was on building P&Ls, uh, building businesses, the risk infrastructure, and a lot of just core banking. So did that for a number of years, uh, eventually left Capital One, um, built a, a student lending company for a number of years, and then joined back up with the co-founder of Capital One, Nigel Morris, uh, to form QED Investors. And for the past 14 years, we're re we've really been uh, investors, um, uh, I would say second and operators first. So we're really in uh, operators masquerading as investors, if you want to think about it that way. We have operating backgrounds. We know how to help and build companies. Uh, we've invested in about 180 companies in the past 14 years. Uh, we now have, gosh, somewhere between 25 and 30 companies that are worth over a billion dollars where we were the first or second check into the company. Uh, and really, we just roll up our sleeves. Uh, we figure out how to help a company crack the code on their business model. And we've now done it, like I said, 180 or so times. We have about 20 investment professionals globally. Um, and we're just trying to figure out how to take our operating backgrounds and build real businesses. That's awesome. No, super helpful. Zach's actually a former operator as well. So, um, yeah, he knows the world. Uh, he knows he knows that whole ecosystem. Or so I've been told. Yeah, so he's been told. So, so uh, maybe just, just out of my own curiosity, I think it's an interesting story. Can you just give like the, uh, I don't know, the short-ish version of Capital One's history. I think people know it from the commercials and maybe people are customers of it, but uh, it, it, Nigel was one of the founders, your partner now at QED. Can you just give the like quick primer on how it started, uh, what industry it was in or what it was doing originally, and then like the the machinations over the course of whatever the last 30 years? I know it's I know we're synthesizing a lot into a very short version, but I, I think it's helpful as we sort of think through DeFi and crypto applications and also just my own curiosity. I mean, the Reader's Digest version is that um, Capital One was really one of the first fintechs, right? So it was a fintech of the 1990s. So that that does, you know, date it quite a bit. Um, but it was a spin out, you know, from a traditional regional bank called Signet Bank. So Signet Bank was the 50th largest bank in the country at the time, serving mostly Virginia, Maryland and D.C., um, and it happened to have a decent sized credit card portfolio at the time. There only were about somewhere between 10 and 20 banks in the country that had sizable credit card portfolios. Um, and Rich and Nigel, who eventually became the, the co-founders of Capital One, were consultants at the time. 
uh, working for a consultancy called SPA. And uh, they were going around to different banks with this strategy, this credit card strategy that they called the information-based strategy and said, you can use information to run your business instead of just guessing. Instead of just figuring out what you want to do and then you know, hopefully you would be right in the marketplace or just copying everyone else and having an industry that looked the same. You could run lots of little experiments because of data availability. You could actually do test and control experiments the same way that you could uh, with any type of scientific experiment. And because you had a channel called direct mail that you could put offers in people's mailboxes where they weren't comparing offers to other people, it was just showing up in their mailbox you had kind of the formula for lots of experimentation where when you found a winning strategy, you could then roll it out with a lot more certainty and there wasn't a lot of guesswork. So the information-based strategy was basically taking the scientific methodology and applying it to banking. And at the time, they were talking to all of the major banks in the country about this and all of the banks except for Signet Bank either said they weren't interested in it or they said they were already doing it. Was the thesis here around like underwriting on the credit risk itself or where was the big data advantage that you thought it would come from? Uh, it was a little bit everywhere, right? So the ability to treat the credit card industry, which was a law of large numbers, right? I mean, if you succeeded, it was millions and millions, tens of millions of people that would be adopting your product. Everything from marketing, um, which would be the message going out to the consumer, everything to the product, you know, what are the terms of the product? And there are a lot of different terms in a credit card product to how you manage them on the back end. You know, when do you give credit limit increases? When do you give credit limit decreases? You know, how do you collect against individuals? You had such large N, right? If you want to think about it in terms of the scientific method, that you could experiment with small groups for every single little piece of the credit card process you know, every part of the product, every part of marketing. And once you had an answer that was a good answer, you then could roll it out roll it. with larger scale. And then you had a lot more certainty around your results. Yep. So it was the first time that data warehouses were needed. You know, a lot of structured testing was needed in banking because up until that point, you know, little committees would get together and say, this is the price. This is what we're going to be offering our customers. We're just going to roll it out in all of our bank branches and it's just going to be the product that we offer. And the concept of getting the right product into the hands of the right customer at the right time through the right channel was really what Capital One was all about. And Signet Bank, when they heard the pitch from Rich and Nigel, they said, we're very interested in this, but we don't want you to consult. We want you to actually build and run it. So were, 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 were they going around and pitching this as a thesis to people with existing credit card businesses saying like, hey, here's how you should do it. And, and the, the, the bank actually took them up on it to run it. That's right. So they were turned down by Citibank and JP Morgan and Chemical and like all of the banks at the time just turned them down saying either they weren't interested or they thought they were already doing it. And they weren't, right? So like in order to do this, there was a whole bunch of new technology that needed to be put in place. So, you know, it really was the first set of data warehouses that needed to be created, you know, within banking in order to store all of this data. First organized tests, you know, we were on the cutting edge of using Oracle and databases in different ways than banking was used to. Um, but once the machinery was built, you know, you were able to conduct thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of experiments every year, because really what a credit card is, is a number, it's a bunch of numbers sitting in a, 
in, in a computer about all the different terms and all the things that you do and when you do them. And then there's a marketing pitch and there's a plastic and there's a bunch of other things associated with the card. But you can configure it almost uniquely to the individual level if you know what you're doing. So, you know, arguably, if you think about that, it's a lot of technology, a lot of data science, which back then we used statisticians. Today, they're called data scientists. Um, you know, it was a lot of structured thinking about what is the hypothesis? How do we test it? How do we get a result? If we get the result, what do we do? And we built the whole company around that. And so so to get the actual spin out, so they said okay uh, to doing it and said, we want you to run it. Uh, don't consult, go in and do it. And and so then what, what happened? How big was the company that actually ended up spinning out? Um, and when did you get involved in all of that? So I was hired when it was still Signet Bank. I was one of the first analysts hired by Rich and Nigel directly out of college. I came from the, the University of Virginia. Uh, with degrees in applied math and science, uh, which was undergraduate, and then systems engineering uh, graduate degree, which was mostly artificial intelligence and a lot of like deep optimization work. So I didn't know anything about banking. I didn't know anything about finance, but was brought over by Rich and Nigel because of this this dream that they wanted to build around, you know, building a, a scientific you know, finance organization. And were they consulting at that point with the path that they were going to take over or how did that work? Because it sounds like you, you actually went in as a full-time employee before they did. Uh, no, they were, they were brought in full-time. So they pitched Signet Bank. Signet Bank said, leave SPA, come work for us. They came to build the credit card division within Signet Bank. And then I was hired into Signet Bank to be one of the early people there. Got it. With a path to, um, towards ultimately spinning out or was that already uh, in, in uh, was that TB to, TB, to be determined? Yeah, it was TBD. But, you know, the beauty is once this thing started cranking and it was working, it was growing so fast, it was consuming all of the resources of the company. So if you're a bank and you've got many divisions and one of them is growing faster than the others, it either consumes all of the capital and everything else is starved, or you end up starving the thing that's growing fast because you don't have enough capital. So the easiest thing to do was to spin it off. You know, most people forget that an IPO is actually a fundraising event, but it was the fundraising event that helped fuel Capital One. Um, it spun off at somewhere around a billion dollar valuation and, you know, over a handful of years, it ended up becoming a 30, 40 billion dollar, you know, enterprise with tens of thousands of people globally. That's super interesting. And eventually we'll get to the crypto component of all this, but was the core insight just building the infrastructure and the enablement for experimentation across a bunch of different uh, manners and just the ability to to try different things that banks weren't going to be nimble enough to actually do and kind of putting all that infrastructure in place to to test all this stuff and see what actually works. Yeah, so a big piece of it was the scientific methodology. Uh, but what went along with that is the fact that you needed to hire people who knew how to structure tests, who knew how to read the results. And ultimately, we we always thought that we reported to the data, not the other way around. Like, so you almost have an inverted pyramid where instead of a command and control structure where the person at top actually makes decisions, like you can think of it as an inverted pyramid where, you know, ultimately there's someone who's structuring tests and when the data actually comes in, like the answer is there, right? And then it's about organizing everyone around that answer. Um, so, you know, the senior most people are really talent managers. They're hiring the right people. They're pointing them against the right opportunity. But the answers are coming from the data itself. So to say that back to you, uh, it was both the insight 
and the ability to execute on that insight and then to hire people and run it like a technology startup company. It was all those things that kind of led to the success that Capital One, I just looked it up, $40 billion plus company today. That's right. Uh, you can't collapse it to just. Yeah, sure. Strategy. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's, a, I'm sure there's a very long, I'm sure there's books written about it and uh, all that. There, there, uh, there's the HBS case yeah. on Capital One, among other, other things. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. And so then you, you started QED, uh, you said 13 years ago, is that right? Uh, it was right at the beginning of 2008. We were, you know, envisioning it in 2007, but at the beginning of 2008, which is really interesting because, you know, building a fintech focused VC fund before there was even a thing called fintech. So there wasn't even a name. And right at the beginning of the uh, financial crisis, uh, really interesting decision to start a fintech focused VC fund uh, at the time. But as Nigel and I joke, it, it was the only thing we knew how to do. Right. So we were going to do it, whether it was going to be lucrative or not, whether it was going to be big or not. We were just going to take our operating backgrounds and try to to help out really young companies that were trying to innovate, you know, in the banking space because we thought we would be helpful. That's great. And you guys have obviously been super successful. I, I know both of you have been on the Midas list a bunch of uh, times and uh, have had a number of iconic companies in the portfolio. I was just I was just looking at the list, but uh, I guess we share. We share Newbank, you have Klarna, you have uh, just a host of, I mean, uh, amazing companies in the portfolio in and around the fintech space. And so have you guys stayed? Is that still the the core focus area? Is fintech broadly broadly defined and uh, and focusing around that? Yeah, so fintech broadly defined is probably the right way of phrasing it because there's so many fintech adjacencies and there are so many businesses that once they get to a certain level of scale, they're now layering fintech solutions on top of them. So the intersection of fintech and fill in the blank, you know, is a big piece of what we're doing. And then a lot of core fintech infrastructure and a lot of core fintech originations. But um, if it has anything to do in and around, you know, the pillars of banking, um, or insurance or prop tech, which a lot of that has uh, very, very close analogs with fintech, um, we're, we're interested in. And so uh, take me, I, I remember, um, I don't know when it was, you can date me on the time, but uh, you've been pretty uh, tradfi, traditional finance oriented and a lot of the infrastructure and stuff around that. And then one day, I, uh, I, I saw on Twitter that you had, uh, you had switched your, your avatar to a, to an NFT and, uh, and it seemed like you, you started curiously kind of pursuing things around the, uh, I don't know if it's crypto or web three or whatever you want to call it, NFT ecosystem. So maybe take us through your journey of, uh, it, it was later than, than most people that have gone deep into the space. So. Maybe take us through your skepticism around all this stuff and then what ultimately led you to uh, to pursuing it. Yeah, so uh, I, I made the decision eight months ago, so almost to the day, uh, eight months ago to take the red pill and, you know, it, at least understand and, and dive into Web3, DeFi, crypto and everything surrounding it. How does that time, how does that coincide with the market top? By the way, is that pretty close? It pretty much was the market. Yeah, okay. That's so, uh, I've been riding this down the entire time. Causation or correlation, who's to say? But it is uh, interesting because I think if you're going into it as a student, 
it is easier to learn lessons on the way down than it is on the way up. You know, the same way that it's easier to learn from mistakes that you make in investing than it is when things just magically succeed. Hmm. My introduction was around assuming that the bank and the government is ill-prepared to make use of all this tax income that's coming in, and they're putting a lot of governors on things that should be in the hands of individuals, and I disagreed with that. I found out later that there were other use cases from people in other countries, right, where it could be about preserving the value of earned capital because their governments were mismanaging a lot of the corporate treasuries and inflation was out of control, and they wanted somewhere where they could plant money that was much more stable. And, you know, they didn't want the banks to have control of their money because the money might not be there when they need it. But my introduction was a very different introduction. So you can fast forward many, many, many years because I got busy with, with uh, QED and all of the interesting innovations that were taking place, you know, in the, the fintech ecosystem. And every single time that crypto would come up, I would get confused because I would talk to people. And I even remember we were looking at Coinbase and uh, I think it was the seed round of Coinbase. And one of my partners at the time said, let me set you up with an account and I'll, I'll send you $2 worth of Bitcoin. So he sent me $2 worth of Bitcoin. And I said, well, now what do I do with it? And he said, I have no idea. I said, can I spend it? He goes, I don't think so. I said, well, $2 of anything doesn't really mean anything. Can I get it back out? He goes, well, maybe. Like it was a really interesting thing because we were used to kicking the tires on products where you could do diligence and figure out what the problem statement was and the solution statement. And I just couldn't figure it out. So every time I just kicked the tires and said, we have too many things going on, let's concentrate on the things that we do understand. Well, QED and QED's brand is about being the best advisors to our companies bar none. And little by little, a lot of our companies, or I should say gradually, our companies started asking questions about this thing called crypto, this thing called Web3, this thing called DeFi. And we were ill-equipped as an organization to basically answer their questions. You know, I had my own skepticism, but at the same time, you saw these waves of growth and you saw waves of adoption and whole businesses that were being built around this. You saw a lot of talent flowing into the ecosystem. A lot of really, really intelligent people started having conversations with me and other people on the team that were more rational and much less uh, what, what I would call, we, we, we could talk um, about the fundamentals, not just about the religion, right? Uh, so it wasn't about just starting with first principles that we disagreed with each other on. You actually could talk about utility and use cases. So I just decided that uh, the only way to live up to the brand promise of QED was to dive in. And the only way I know how to is to go all the way in. You know, people who know me know that, you know, I, I can only give advice if I'm an absolute expert on something. And it's been maddening. You know, I agreed with one of our companies to actually learn in public as a way of holding myself accountable, but also distilling everything that was being learned along the way putting it out into the world to have other people challenge it, uh, a way of attracting other people to the conversation, um, and really putting an agnostic view out there about saying, here, here's the good, here's the bad, here are the things that are still unknown. You know, here are some things that I don't have the answers to. Does anybody want to help me? And it's been 
uh, one heck of a ride, I'll tell you that, you know, over the past eight months, because now I feel like I have my sea legs. Um, it, it actually is an area where as much as I am a good student, uh, I am learning every day, but I feel like I'm farther behind every day than I am ahead. That's how fast things are moving. Um, but that takes us to today where I, I feel like I have my sea legs and I feel like I have a pretty good perspective on what's going on. And, and so maybe let's go from there. Like, what do you believe? I think there's kind of a couple different buckets that we, we've sort of touched on and there, Bitcoin's almost its own thing. And then, you know, maybe Ethereum and a handful of the other things are its own thing. And then there's DeFi, which is kind of its own thing. Then there's NFTs, which are its own thing. Like, what do you believe? What is, what is bullshit? Uh, and you just fundamentally don't believe what is, where is their substance that you're most intrigued to continue to pull on the threads of, of things? I was very confused when I first dove in because it's hard to know where to start, right? I mean, the space is very confusing. It's intimidating. Um, nothing actually works. Everything kind of sort of works, but nothing actually works. Um, you almost have to, to, uh, uh, I would say debug things yourself along the way, which means if you don't have a good friend network, you know, people who are willing to actually help you that are farther along the journey than you are, then you're either lost or you're going to make a lot of really big mistakes and expensive mistakes along the way. So what I would say is like the entire ecosystem isn't actually ready for the typical new consumer, you know, to use anything in the space. Um, it's really about building up the infrastructure at the atomic unit level. It's about, you know, putting these things together once you actually build the foundation into usable units. Um, but we're still at that stage where we're building the infrastructure and putting these things back together in a way that hopefully will create, you know, some solution to some problem with an entirely new infrastructure and an entirely new incentive system. But, you know, the first steps that I took were very intimidating because I didn't realize that things weren't built out to be ready for a typical consumer to really engage with it. Uh, but fortunately... As soon as I raised my hand, you know, there were a lot of people who are more than willing to actually help me on the journey. I found um, so many people in the space who were incredibly friendly. They were helpful. They were there when you had questions. They would step you through kind of process and how you get from point A to point B. But what also struck me is most of them, even the so-called experts, they knew the buttons to push, but they didn't know why. They didn't understand what was actually happening at the atomic level. They didn't understand why certain protocols were structured the way they were. They weren't questioning things at kind of the very deep first principles level that I'm used to thinking about things. And part of my confusion uh, that I think is being cleared up as we speak is that I would look at things and say, none of this actually makes sense. So I felt like I was behind. And the reason why I felt like I was behind is because the things actually didn't make sense, right? So you're seeing a lot of things unwind in the industry right now, uh, especially in the DeFi world, where there are companies and protocols that were trying to defy the physics of banking. So when I would challenge the teams or I would talk to people about protocols or I would ask like the deeper questions because I actually understand banking at the atomic level. I would get answers that made no sense because they were trying to violate the physics of how banking works. 
And now you're seeing kind of the effect of either ignoring things like Alco, right? Assets and liabilities and making sure they match or duration mismatches or, you know, run on the bank issues that you try to take care of when you're actually, you know, building a bank and putting the right protocols in place. Um, you know, you're starting to see some of the challenges with um, under collateralized or un collateralized lending, you know, versus over collateralized lending, which by the way, are not the same thing. They're not anywhere close to the same form of lending. Um, so now that things are unwinding, I think it's actually a pretty interesting time because so many of the questions and challenges that I had for teams and for individuals, you're now seeing the effect of having, you know, models that weren't built on a solid foundation. That's what I found. You know, it was it spent a whole bunch of time asking the well, do you understand how it works today? And you'd get like surface level answers. And clearly people didn't understand the mechanics or the players or, you know, even the math, if you will, behind many of these things. It was just like so crazy and out of whack and definitely made me realize what we had was a lot of kind of technical people, I think, discovering the rules of finance and to, so I like the way you put it, the physics if you will, of banking for the first time. When you, when you did dig in, which areas started to make sense, if, if any, actually? Like, what areas made the most sense to you? So, not a surprise, the first places I started digging in were DeFi, right? Just given my background, you would expect that anything that was, like, technically banking-oriented would be interesting. And the funny thing is, eight months later, I find DeFi the least interesting part of what I've learned. Um, in fact, a lot of DeFi is trying to solve already solved problems just with a different infrastructure and different incentive system. And I get it. Like, you know, the movement of money through a ledger that is permissionless, like that's a pretty interesting thing. It has to be assembled the right way. Um, and I think if it's assembled the right way, things like stable coins really could work with international settlements and it could work with good funds, which by the way, is a really important topic in banking that I think a lot of people don't understand, like the concept of good funds. Um, you know, lending is something that I dug into pretty extensively and it was pretty clear that everyone that was referring to lending in the DeFi world was really referring to over collateralized lending, which is really leverage. It's not yep. lending. It's leverage. It's not, it's, and, and in fact, most of the use of proceeds was to get leverage on doubling down or tripling down on things in the crypto ecosystem. It wasn't about raising capital for any use of proceeds in the real world. Frank, can you maybe just explain that distinction just uh, at, at, at an elementary level um, for, for people that maybe are, aren't familiarized with it? So traditional lending is about um, giving someone capital today in return for a stream of payments in the future with some payment frequency associated with it, where there's a distribution of outcomes in terms of that, that stream of income that you expect to get back in the future, right? So I give you money today to buy a car, and then over the next 60 months, every month, you agree that you're going to pay me a fixed amount of money back that adds up to whatever the principal was plus the interest that I charged you know, for that loan. Like that would be an example of a loan. When you're dealing with over collateralized lending, you're really pledging collateral 
that you know is liquid, you have the ability to liquidate at any time because of the way the markets are structured. And usually the use of proceeds is to say in the crypto space was to say, look, you pledge Bitcoin or you pledge Ethereum uh, at 20 cents on the dollar for or 20 cents on the ETH or however you want to think about it. Um, uh, tw 0.2 ETH on the ETH, um, you know, for access to more capital that you could then go buy more ETH or buy more Bitcoin and lever yourself up because you have a, uh, a desire to take one side of the directionality of the movement of that particular token. So you would see this a lot where people were saying, I'm staking my tokens so that I could actually go buy more tokens, which is really about getting leverage in the ecosystem. Um, those are not the same thing. You know, as the, the token prices started falling, if it really were a liquid market, you'd have the ability to liquidate or put a capital call in place, which is not the same as understanding ability to pay, willingness to pay, stability of income, and what the distribution of payment was likely to look like for lending you proceeds for a purpose. So they're not the same business. Lending uh, is really about uh, statistical modeling, analytics, uh, again, understanding the core tenets of ability to pay, willingness to pay, stability of income, collateral. Um, very different than just having an over-collateralized asset that you now have control over um, and giving money to someone that usually wants to double down on that same asset. Yeah, in the same way you could borrow against your S&P 500 stock portfolio or you could borrow against you know, some asset class where the lender kind of actually holds it. You know, they, they actually have possession of the collateral typically before they're willing to lend to you so that if the collateral as a percentage of what they've lent you kind of gets out of whack, they can just grab it and reclaim it, right? There's no runaway risk, if you will. If you've taken possession of the collateral and you've lent less than the value of that collateral against that collateral, do you actually care who the person is, right? Like that, that that's a very important distinction because I would talk to a lot of companies that said, we'll start with fully secured or over secured, over collateralized lending, and then we'll move into unsecured lending. And I say, these aren't the same thing. Like in the world of, of crypto, in the world of web three, you only know, you know, a wallet. You don't know who the person is behind the wallet. And if you're underwriting them for the probability of them paying you back, you kind of sort of need to know who they are. And in case of default, you kind of sort of need to know who they are so that you could have collection activities and figure out, you know, how to claim money um, in some form or fashion if they end up defaulting, right? Because there's not enough collateral there to make good on the loan. And a lot of the companies that I talked to in the DeFi space said, we'll figure that out when we get there. But that's not a good answer, but it was an answer I would get from a lot of DeFi companies. When you would start to get down to the first principles, they would say, we'll figure it out when we get there. And they were trying to reinvent banking. But through the lens of a Web3, um, uh, I, I would say, zeitgeist and ethos that actually might have had no intersection with a solution that worked. I would actually argue in, in some cases, it ends up with a system that is materially worse. Uh, and in terms of, it's not only like the lack of understanding of how it works, but the lack of diligence and KYC and like 
knowing who the actual person is that you're like, they just didn't understand it. They just didn't understand like how the current process works. The international settlement one is always interesting because at the end of the day, you know, why would banks use a public ledger for settlements? Like the idea of a common ledger between banks without trust, maybe, although you'd argue that that lack of trust is inherently a symptom of other issues. And so like, where does this really apply? But now you're getting into like the underlying deep, deep guts of settlements. And so like how big of this, of a market are we really talking about here? And isn't this honestly just at the end of the day, like a fed sponsored protocol, but I, I, I always got lost in like, what problem are we solving here and for whom? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are a lot of interesting use cases, especially as a, uh, the, the ability to in some ways bet against your own country's monetary policy by storing your money uh, in, in a vehicle and a currency that is not subject to the movements of the inflation or the monetary policy of your own country. So for a lot of, a lot of people, they earn their money in local currency. And, uh, if it's in a country, let's say a Latin American country or an African country where inflation is out of control, they're losing spending power every day. Well, you can do that today, right? Like you can buy assets, equities, credit, yeah, you know, very difficult in some countries. Is it though? Like I always hear that and I'm not disagreeing necessarily, but then I kind of ask, well, which countries is it difficult in? And then I get a bunch of vague answers of like, well, Latin America. And I said, well, that's not a country. Like which country in Latin America is it hard? And then you kind of dig into the details and you realize like, or it's, you have to open a bank account and you have to do like normal credit, like KYC checks and You've got to ask for the, you know, non-local currency denominated account, but that also gets you access to not just crypto, right? That gets you access to international markets for, for anything and everything. But I think the, these are the questions you need to ask. You know, Africa would be another example where a lot of people in Africa travel between countries pretty frequently. And, uh, the currency pairs between individual African countries aren't traded with enough depth that almost every single African currency actually goes through USD to be converted to the other African currency, which is a really inefficient way of moving money or transferring money if you're about to travel. So there are other types of, you know, payment solutions and the ability to convert into neutral currency that uh, is much more tradable and much more liquid that makes sense. But you need to get to these use cases and understand what's happening, you know, in, in order to understand if there is a real problem to solve. Yeah. And by the way, I do think unsecured and under, uh, under collateralized lending is possible in the DeFi world. I just think some fundamental questions need to be answered first. I think almost every aspect of banking could be built on DeFi rails. You have to ask yourself why, um, but I think you you could like I wrote a, a whole thread early on about what it would take to tear down Visa MasterCard and actually create it in a DeFi context, um, because it's really interesting. Most of the people in the DeFi world thought that, you know, uh, taking a payment was about swiping a credit card and moving money from one ledger to another ledger. Yeah. yeah. But Visa and MasterCard are about so much more than that, right? The underwriting of the merchants, the ability to reverse transactions, right? I mean, there's so much that goes on in the Visa MasterCard ecosystem that if you tear everything down to the atomic units, 
you understand what needs to be rebuilt in order to rebuild it in a DeFi context. So where this eventually led me was I spent a lot of time in DeFi, and I think I understand it modestly well. I'm still learning a lot every day, and it's changing very quickly. But I found uh, the, the ethos and zeitgeist of what was happening in Web3 more interesting, actually, than a lot of what was happening in DeFi. Uh, I found myself attracted to the NFT space, uh, started really thinking about DAOs and a lot of the structures around decision-making. I uh, spent a lot of time thinking about tokenomics and incentive systems and replacing, uh, I, I would say almost inverting the order of building a business where building it community first and product second, you know, versus the other way around, which is what's done in the web two world. And I, I've actually been sucked in, you know, and trying to solve, you know, some of the unsolved problems, especially in the NFT space. Um, where I think it is a magical new way uh, to start a business if done right. And I think no one has really cracked the code on this. Um, so it's a really interesting time and space. Same thing with tokenomics. I think if you get it right, it is an entirely new way to build your business about rewarding your customers, you know, through liquid currencies uh, that reward certain behaviors. Uh, it, it, it's just a very, very... Um, new thing, uh, new infrastructure. And I think it plays to the zeitgeist of this next generation where they don't want all of the profits to accrue to people at the top. They want to participate in building a business, participate in uh, the proceeds of the business if the business does well. Um, they want to be able to shout from the rooftops and be proud of the thing that they're associating with. Like, it's they a want to be... They want to be like equity holders in that company, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. We've been incredibly disconnected over the past couple of years. Like, no one can deny that between what happened with the pandemic, but also politics are just nasty. You know, people don't really want to have the, the, the dialogue around really difficult topics. Um, but the past couple of years have been really, really bad. And people have felt more disconnected from just about everything in life than they, they ever have before. And what I found is that in the Web3 space, if you ever want to take a pessimist and turn them into an optimist, all you should do is have them find an NFT project that they're interested in, have them go mint an NFT at 0.05 ETH or, you know, somewhere around a hundred bucks today. And, uh, have them join a Discord group and start listening in on Twitter spaces that that NFT project holds, and they will be an optimist almost overnight. They will throw themselves into the project. They'll have a cause. They'll find themselves with hundreds of new friends. They'll have a common topic to talk about that isn't negative. They'll feel like they can participate in actually building something. They feel like they can help kink the curve on the outcome. And they feel like there's actually a monetary return that could come if this particular project ends up doing well and taking off. So it's a really interesting innovation to say you can spin up a community around purpose, have a fundraising event called an NFT Mint, create a treasury around that team that now has to actually go build the business. But what is the, what is the business they are building? Like, isn't this just the same thing as like the chat rooms around the penny stocks where you could like chat with a bunch of other people who like this company and 
you all had the same underlying asset you were trying to promote. It's effectively what's happening here. And that if the value of that asset went up, penny stock or NFT, then everybody in that community wins, which makes sense like economically, you all win together. But at the end of the day, isn't it just like speculative art projects? Like what's the difference? There's going to be some chart someone comes out with eventually that has like organized religion down and NFT project up and, you know, number of people like on NFTs. So there's the, the front end of a project and the back end of a project. And I think the front end of the project, we've seen 10,000 experiments in the space, if you want to think about it that way, about 10,000 projects listed on OpenSea. Um, of those 10,000 projects, you have to ask yourself, how many have teams on the other side that actually know how to build businesses and are working backwards from, you know, some vision that's going to turn into something of durable value? That's questionable, right? The answer might be 100. The answer might be 50. The answer might be none. The answer is not 10,000. But what I find so interesting is the NFT process, the technology behind it, the ability to spin up communities, the communication vehicles that are now available that were not available in the past, um, are inverting the order of operations of building a business. If done correctly, you, you don't have very many business teams on the other side that are very good and capable of building something of durable value. The only thing you described, and I want to make sure I understand it, but the only thing that you described that is different this time is essentially the product is like a JPEG I can put on a blockchain. But besides that, the idea of like organizing a team around a central topic and communication around that topic and sharing of information and aligning incentives and all of these same things are essentially the equivalent of like anyone starting any business at any time post-internet, right? You always had access to chat. You always had access to phone calls and, you know, Discord's cool and new. I think Discord's kind of an amazing tool set, right? But the crypto piece of it is basically a, like mental shortcut on the product. Because kind of what we're saying is, hey, we're going to make all of this easy and then we're actually going to make the product, the thing that ultimately is supposed to have value and eventually make money in a normal world, we're going to make that part easy too. And in reality, like products are not, that's the hard part. Yeah. So again, this is what's interesting is that it has not been solved because you haven't seen very many teams come together that have the business acumen to complete the story. So when you lower the barriers of entry to zero, you get a lot of people coming into a space and like it's a cash grab, like there's a lot of money that's being pulled out of the ecosystem into the hands of creators that aren't actually creating anything. But what's interesting is if you did have a talented team, the ability to spin up these communities uh, have the communication vehicles around them, the ability to have shared purpose. Like these are all about the ethos of what Web3 is about. And I think you're going to see new businesses built in this particular way. Um, you're going to see more participation of your own customers in the economics of your product. So, you know, an example, I think a lot of these businesses, if you get the tokenomics right, are trading lower acquisition costs because people are so excited about the product and they shout from the rooftops about it and they become your marketing channel 
and you're trading it for lower economics on the back end because you're sharing in the economics with your own customers. Can I ask you about that? Because I keep hearing that. I keep hearing that. And, and I want to make sure I understand the mechanics of this, because when we say share in the economics, usually how I translate that is a percentage of the equity or of the revenue, right? There's some like future income stream because ultimately I want to get cash, right? Because I actually want to like buy something. So we say you get the share in the economics, but then I actually understand what's going on here. And really what we're saying is you get early access to the coin, which is likely to run up in value as we add more users, right? As like more people come on. And then eventually you get to this like funky economic system where you're actually incentivized to then get rid of the coin that you own and move to the next one because your expected return on the coin itself is trending down because the coin itself has no future cash flows, right? It has no income stream. It's just a coin. So, and it's made up uh, and has no real. You're describing uh, poor tokenomics. Yeah. So what's a good, what's a good one? That's kind of what I'm asking, I guess. Like what, what would, is so it, imagine, is it a rev share? Imagine if you had spun up uh, AWS in a web three context and the token represented AWS credits. And before AWS had actually been created, you could buy those credits at a very, you know, deep discount to what they would trade at once the system was actually created up and running and had utility. Yeah, like a prepay for a product, like Tesla taking in cash for the cars that they're going to build. Right. But those AWS credits would be incredibly useful and incredibly valuable, and you would have bought them at an incredible discount to what they're worth once the system is actually up and running. So that would be an example of a, a tokenomic system that could work. Now, part of the problem is when you have a speculative world, when you have full liquidity. I think there's a duration mismatch issue with a lot of the tokenomics where a lot of the tokens are tradable before there's actually utility. Yes. Right. Then you have all sorts of weird incentives that are coming into play where people are trading their AWS credits to use that example while AWS is still being built. And there's a lot of speculation about what is this thing going to be worth? What is it going to cost? What are these credits going to be worth? And, you know, then you've created a, a very liquid market around something that has no utility except in the future. Even more importantly, I would argue, Frank, is like you have a bunch of users who actually aren't users. They're not real. Like they're there. They exist. It's, it's somebody's dollar, but they're not there because they're interested in your product and have any sort of like benefit to your product development lifecycle and feedback. They're there to speculate on the future utility of your product, which is part of why I feel like it's actually almost inversely related to the right way to do product design. Like what you really want in an ideal world is actually more of like what a Tesla did, which is you have people put up real money to buy the product, like a Kickstarter or whatever the, the use case is, because then you can at least measure that they're there because they want the thing you're building. The, the, the tradability aspect of it, to me, actually introduces a factor that if I were building a company trying to figure out what that product is, it's noise. I mean, to your whole point of looking at the data, like that is noisy data. Who's actually there because they want to use the you know, Web3 AWS and who's there because they want to trade the actual token? Liquidity is both a feature and a flaw. 
And I think that it's created a duration mismatch issue at almost every single aspect of the Web3 ecosystem that will need to be solved in order to build big, durable businesses, right? So, you know, when, when I talk about being fascinated by tokenomics, I don't think it's the solution to everything. In fact, I think it's the reason for a lot of problems in the ecosystem, right? So if you actually are able to get liquidity on something before there's actual utility, you're basically trading on the option value of what that will be worth at some point in the future. You're a speculator. You're a speculator. Yeah. And there's a lot of speculation going on in the space, which, you know, as, as you can see by tokens going up and tokens going down, like there are a lot of people making money and a lot of people getting wrecked, you know, because of the speculation involved. But I find the mechanics of tokenomics interesting. I find the mechanics of NFTs and the ability to invert the order of operations of building a business fascinating. And by the way, when you when you say interesting, like, uh, and I guess this is one of the things that Zach and I have debated with people, like, to what extent do you find this interesting? Like, I, I think all of this stuff is interesting as well. Not interesting enough that I'm going to go invest in a lot of it. Not interesting enough that I want to spend a whole bunch of time figuring this out. But I, I think it's intellectually interesting to watch smart people figure out the financial uh system that we've built over the last 200 years in the last two, right? I think that's intellectually interesting and uh, to watch how that's playing out. Like, to what end do you find this interesting? Have you done, have you guys as a, as a fund done crypto investments or is this a fun side project that maybe one day is going to, who knows, right? But at least you're at the ground floor or ground-ish floor figuring this stuff out. Like, what altitude and expectations do you actually have to putting your limited partner's capital behind some of these things versus Frank having fun? Yeah, so we, we have a number of investments as a fund. Um, so we're investors in Bitso and ShakePay and, you know, Tribal has a token and Milo is doing crypto mortgages and Blockspaces is, is doing things. Meow is another one in our portfolio. So we have a number of, you know, Web3 themed investments. Um, we are learning more, uh, ultimately, if we want to be the best advisors to companies bar none, you have to answer the question, why would a talented founder take your capital? And you have to answer the question, why would LPs give you money to deploy in a particular space? And a lot of the journey over the past eight months for myself and other people on the QED team, I'm not the only one, you know, going through this journey. Um, but it's to build the capability so that you could answer those questions about why would LPs give you money to deploy in the space and why would talented founders take your money? So, you know, we found very specific companies where we could answer definitively why, and we were the right investor for them. Um, hopefully those, the, the, the number and the vista of businesses that would qualify for that is now increasing, you know, especially now that there have been some. Uh, let's just say companies that have tried to violate the the physics of banking have been blown up. And now people realize you need someone who does understand the physics of banking. I think we become more valuable to the ecosystem going forward than we were in the past. Um, but this is going to be an area of focus for us because, again, the idea of digital programmable permissionless money, like that is almost the definition of fintech. Right. It's a financial technology. And the question is, is it being wielded right? Is it being assembled right? 
And, you know, up until now, it's been a lot of experiments. And most of those experiments are either, you know, fizzling out or they're still being built. Um, you know, so it's still very early and I think we could play a, a seminal role. And so to that end, like if, if, uh, I don't know the right way of thinking about this or how you want to talk about it, uh, but like the percentage of dollars that you feel like either out of your fund or are maybe commiserate of the venture ecosystem with the opportunity, right? So I think last year something like 25, 30 billion dollars went into Web3 crypto globally, right? Uh, and what we're talking about, it sounds like your perspective, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like your perspective are, hey, a lot of DeFi is uh, solving problems that maybe don't exist, but there are some use cases that do exist. And I don't know how you think about or size the opportunity of those. And then also talking about, we, we spend most of our time talking about NFTs, but also I think a lot of the pillars that you talked about are applicable to DAOs as well, right? Of you know, starting a community first and building product after the fact or some of those things. But how do you help us? Like, I think our cynicism, uh, if you can call it that, or at least perspective, is not that there aren't things or not that it could get there. It's just how do you match the the appropriate sizing of the dollars, right, with the opportunities that exist today and what it can be in the future? And so how would you help us frame or for people listening to this frame like just that question of like what is appropriate for the opportunity set as you as you see it and you obviously don't need to speak for the venture ecosystem at large but just you know using that as something of a framing how would you how would you help level set us so this this dates me quite a bit but i remember web 1 Right. And you, when, when there were companies that were building around web one, you, you would literally say, is it a web company or is it not a web company? Right. Did they have a website was kind of a delineator about whether they were a web company or not a web company. And a lot of companies were trying to figure out, do we need a website? Do we have the technology for it? What does it do? How is it going to help us? How do we maintain it? Do we outsource it? Do we insource it? Like there were a lot of questions about becoming a web company. The same thing happened with mobile phones, right? Are you a mobile company? Do you have mobile technology? Do you have an app? You know, can people access it on their phone? Do they have full functionality or do they have to go to a website or do they have to go in person and do something? Like, are you a, a you know, a, a smartphone enabled, a you know, tech company that has adopted that next wave of technology. I think we're looking at a technology that could be seen in the same way, right? Where we're now asking, are you web three? But the reality is it's an infrastructure layer, a different way of doing things, a backbone, uh, about having a, an, an immutable permissionless ledger and, and a bunch of other things that go into the technology. Um, there's some level of decentralization that goes into the technology, um, some level of tokenization that goes into the technology, you know, NFTs go into it, DAOs go into it. Like there's a lot that goes into web three, but 10 years from now, I don't think we're going to be saying, are you a web three company, right? The same way we're not going to ask people, you know, are you a Ruby on rails, you know, development firm or not? Like it's just infrastructure and your technologists will figure out the right infrastructure that they'll use for the right use case. 
But when I think about things like NFTs, you know, which really are uh, immutable proof of something, right? That you can actually have the whole provenance behind it, but you can prove that a particular wallet has some characteristics associated with it, right? The ability to say proof of ownership, proof of accomplishment, proof of credentials, um, proof of working somewhere, proof of making a certain amount of income, proof of certain credit credentials. Like today, all of that resides in centralized databases controlled by third parties that need permissions. But Frank, once you put those on chain, you still have the exact same underlying Oracle problem in every single one of these issues, right? Which is like, at the end of the day, the source of the data that you're putting on chain is a third party that you have to trust. And it's not only just that third party you have to trust. However, that third party gets the data. You have to trust the person at the data. You have to, the person who's typing the data, which is all like working backwards, basically from the exact same setup, unless the data itself is like inherent to the chain. Right. Unless the underlying data. Let's take an example. Right. So yes, you have an Oracle problem. You always are going to have an Oracle problem. But why, when I go to a landlord and apply for a job and they say, I'm sorry, we would go to a landlord and apply for a uh, tenancy, right? So I'm trying to rent an apartment. When they ask me, uh, I need proof of employment and I need proof of income so that I can pass an application process. Why do I need to send them to a third party instead of having proof of right on my phone or in some other immutable form where they can prove it? I can prove it. You can do it in a, a ZK snark way where, you know, the data might not even be, you know, fully transparent and discoverable, but you can ask yes, no questions about things. But you can't prove it. But it is a new technology layer that if the technology is adopted by companies, they don't need a third party because they can permission me with it. If I graduate from a university, why can't I have my transcript? Why can't I have proof of graduation following me around instead of in a centralized database, right? Well, because the proof itself, let's just use that one as an example, right? Like proof of employment or proof of graduation or proof of, I don't, it doesn't matter, right? Like invent the thing you want to prove. There is still an entity, a third party trusted entity who is the source of that truth. Your university, your bank, if it's like proof of money being in existence inside of like a bank account somewhere, proof of employment, which is like an employment verification company that actually checks with your employer that this exists and they put their brand and stamp on it. And so all we're saying is like, pretty please to these companies, could you please now register your data on this public database? Because there's no incentive, by the way, for them to do it, but like, that's what we're asking. We're basically asking like all of these middlemen. And then we also have to trust that the way that they enter that data onto this public database is secure and never messed with. And there's no issues if they like make a mistake because of the whole like irreversibility angle of it, because then they have to go and fix it. So like what we're not really, it's not really proof and it's not really immutable in any way, right? It's actually just this like third party writing to a public database. Now. 
I think there's probably a lot of reasons why it doesn't exist because I, I doubt they have the incentive to do this well and at scale. I think that's really the issue. I don't view it as a technology problem. It's like an incentive problem because the technology doesn't actually solve the problem. So you are asking the right questions. And for some problems, this new ledger technology is going to be the right solution. And for others, it isn't. My point is, this is a technology. And as the technology is built out, as it becomes more efficient, as it becomes more accepted, there are things that can reside in people's wallets that point to public blockchains that are much more efficient than having middlemen, you know, involved in the middle of transactions, right? Where you would have to call upon not just the Oracle to furnish the data to a centralized database, but then have a protocol with the centralized database, you know, to be able to grant permission to someone to get access to that information. A lot of that information could reside at the individual customer level because you own the data as well. And I think this is a technology that enables that to happen. But can't you do that now? I can permission any, like I can permission data to be stored in your Apple Pass, Apple Wallet, Google Wallet. Like I can get a airline ticket permissioned into Google Wallet. I can get a purchase history permissioned into Google Wallet. Like none of this has anything to do with blockchain. It just has everything to do with the underlying company who owns the data agreeing that there's a value in exposing that data out to a third party. This has nothing to do with the blockchain because the blockchain doesn't actually solve any of these problems because the blockchain really is just like an immutable public database Correct. where you can register information there. But the you registering, again, always is still this like third party company. So I can never get my head around like, what problem is the blockchain solving unless the data that you're trying to prove is real is inherent to the chain, right? Meaning it can't be edited because it's part of the underlying yeah. chain itself. So again, you're asking the right questions. You're going to hear me say that a lot because ultimately you have to solve a problem and use the best technology to solve that problem. And I think part of the problem with you know, Web3 and crypto today is people are starting with the infrastructure as being the best solution and then almost building the problems backwards from the best solution, yeah. which, you know, we see a lot of that happening. Um, but think about a bank account as an example, right? One of the reasons why a typical bank account, uh, a typical person has a bank account that they bank at the same institution for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years is because it's a pain in the ass to actually change out your banking account relationship because those numbers, your routing number, everything dealing with that ledger is now so ingrained in so many things that undoing it can be really problematic for people. Like there's real friction. Yeah, because the bank doesn't want you to move. The bank doesn't want you to move, but you as an individual, if that is your data, if that is your money, if everything associated with it were immutable on a public ledger or in a ledger, it doesn't have to be public, but on a ledger that you control, theoretically, you could pick that up and then go to a new bank. You could hang it with that new bank. And then the bank would have to actually offer you the right front end, the right service, the other things associated with, um, well, the, the other things associated with a bank account that are over and above the ledger itself. I mean, that's a, that's got to be regulatory for that to work because under no circumstances is my bank going to agree 
to let me rapidly move all of my account routing like that that account and routing number is registered in with the bank that is what happens when you have an ethereum address or a solana address like you can pick it up if i'm using a metamask account today i could decide not to use a metamask account tomorrow and use a different front end interface pointing to the same data that i own yeah but then you give up all of the protections of having a bank that's right so are people ready to actually be their own fiduciary are they ready um you know to to basically be their own bank so we're gonna we're gonna reverse 150 years of financial innovation so that i can switch accounts yeah so the idea of being a self-custodian is, is something i think is really being explored in the crypto space in a very big way and i think right now just talking to people who are using these things like they're not ready for it because of all the fraud associated with it because of all the the issues with your own keys and you know what happens when you lose your keys and the ability to actually recover things yeah great so i've i have another thread and again i am as agnostic as they come to these things i am neither a champion of web3 nor am i a denier of web3 i think there's a lot of interesting things happening but i wrote a thread about how people don't really understand the benefits that a bank gives you for storing your money, right? I mean, think about if you had a million dollars or $2 million, $10 million, and it was all in physical cash that you stored in your house. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what we used to have to do. <laughs> we used to like actually hold it. Yeah. Yeah. If that were true, what other products and services would you have to procure? Well, now you'd need a security system on your house. Right now you would need actually a container for all of that cash. You would now need to procure insurance because if something were to happen, if there were a fire that burned down your house and if that money burned down with it, you wouldn't have access to it anymore. So you would buy fire insurance or you would buy theft insurance, right? So you would start layering all of these things on top of it in order to protect your money. And a bank does all of that for free. And in fact, they're paying you for storing your money because they're using it for other purposes. Right. It's the best defense of banking I've heard in a long time, Frank. That was pretty good. <laughs> right. But I mean, that, that is what they're doing. So I agree. They give you money for a set of services that actually aren't free for them to deliver. Right. It costs them money to actually deliver this. But they know that if you want to access your money, they are going to make money off of that if it runs through the Visa MasterCard rails, through your debit card. And that's going to be paid for by a merchant. Right. So a merchant is paying for you to be able to store your money and get interest on it, or they are going to take your money and lend it out to someone. Uh, and the interest that they are generating minus the interest that they are paying you minus the cost to create that product is enough to justify actually borrowing the money from you and lending it to someone else. Right. Those are the two business models that really revolve around why a bank can store your money for free and in fact, pay you for it. Right. So when you enter into this Web3 world, like you, you have to really think about this. I, I got into a debate very early on when I was still, you know, uh, I'll call myself a no coiner, you know, at some point before I, I started uh, in the Web3 space. But when I was a no coiner, I was talking to someone who was a Bitcoin maxi and they were trying to argue with me that lost equals lost is a feature. And I, I just could not wrap my head around this. I, I was like, when in life is losing something, making it always lost a feature? 
Like if I lose the keys to my car and I can't use my car, how is that a feature? Right. At a bank, if I lose the keys to a safety deposit box, like there is a process, a procedure for me to regain access to those keys. Right. If I lose a password, I have a way of recovering that password, which then gives me access to my things. So I think you have to be very careful. Like a lot of the, the arguments from maxis are arguments trying to justify a position rather than getting down to the foundational principles of where there are features and where there are flaws. And then trying to assemble things in a way that is smart to solve the problem you're trying to solve. Well, and that right there, which I totally agree with, is why anytime I hear about like real world assets or data or anything where the like underlying source of that information kind of sits with a third party and or starts with a third party or is controlled by a third party or however you want to frame it, that ultimately all we're really doing is introducing this like feature set of irreversibility into the transaction, which introduces a whole bunch of like new risks, actually. It's not just downside, right? It's now like the impact of a mistake is really, really bad. What happens if you lose your admin keys? Yeah, pe people don't realize in life how many things we reverse. Like it, it, it is a feature of life that we reverse many things. When I buy something, I have the ability to reverse the transaction by taking it back to the store. Like we reverse things all the time. That reversibility is also an, it, it, it's an, in, it's a disincentive to try and defraud people because even if you're successful in like an initial defrauding, you kind of get cut off relatively quickly or you have to get your money out in a certain way. So it's not only that we actually do use them quite a bit. I agree with you. Uh, it also prevents people from wanting to be fraudulent. Yeah. But irreversibility is a feature if you care about provenance. Assuming that provenance exists exclusively on chain, because otherwise the provenance is not actually real. That's otherwise that provenance still sits with like a human typing something into a database that makes its way over to the chain. Yeah. If I am an artist and the day that I finish a picture, it is registered on chain and every single transaction is then recorded about who owns it when it's transferred, then I have full provenance. If that digital right. picture was you, you created well, the were, digital picture. Or if it were real, like, right. again, the key is registering everything from day one all the way through. Otherwise, you have to trust the entry, the Oracle problem. And if yeah. you do not trust that, then the provenance break. By the way, I can also take that same picture you just made, register it myself, put it on another NFT marketplace, claim that it's yours, even though it's mine. And now you as the consumer or some centralized NFT marketplace now has to figure out how to make the distinction between yours and mine. And then I can do it like a thousand times over almost immediately because this is what crypto enables is essentially like an immediate copycat where you can kind of play the game of, well, there's not one marketplace, right? It's a decentralized marketplace. It's kind of centralized at the end of it, but it's decentralized in the beginning. And like, I'm still lost as to what is central and what's decentralized. But the fact that it's kind of open allows me to like immediately fake the thing that you said has provenance because yours has provenance, but so does mine. And by the way, it's a digital picture. So it looks like the same thing. And so it's just like unlimited ability to scam the system like over and over and over again, unless that 
I keep going back to the same thing, right? Unless that data point is like inherent to the chain, there's going to be fraud left and right. And it's kind of unstoppable by design, right? Because ultimately, if you really want to stop it, this is what I always get back to. And the art one is always fascinating to me. If you really want to stop it, what you actually need is a trusted third party, neutral source who has reputational risk and future income on the line. What you need is Sotheby's, right? You need an auction house or an art house or someone who's going, I verified that this thing is real. I triple checked everything. I know it's the right one. And if I screw up, you can sue me, which is kind of the role Sotheby's acts. Plus they do like marketing and other stuff. And all of the natural conclusion to this ends up with Sotheby's, which by the way, we talked about another podcast, I think has like or Christie's, I don't know which one it was, but it had a market cap of like $3 billion and it has a giant VIG, right? It takes a huge feat. So I don't, I don't, I work these problems through just like you do. And I can't figure out how any of this stuff works without the data being 100% native to the chain, which basically leaves us with like kind of digital gaming, maybe some like maybe digital nft that's like triple verified so it's not really tradable because you want to go through all these checks like i really struggle to find what is actually made better knowing the incentive to you know defraud the entire system and we're watching it happen you know left and right like the incentive to steal and to create fraudulent transactions all of it is is, is incredible right now so anyway that, that i like that's my challenge even with the digital nft is like it's not the only one yeah and Again, you point to the art of the NFTs, but the NFT is really just, you know, a, a provable piece of code right. uh, that's put on chain. And that piece of code can represent lots of different things, right? It can represent membership. It could have uh, gating, you know, to access. Um, it could be ownership of something like a ticket you know, that you buy, or it could be a membership that you buy. It could be a piece of art. It could be ownership of something. So still back to the third party Oracle problem, right? It's still that ticket. Like that ticket is issued by a third party company, verified by the like security guard at the gate, making sure you're allowed in because they got to go check with the people who issued it. It's the real one. And someone didn't fake it all along the way because it does come from a third party. And you're kind of like, oh yeah, I guess this is why we have like ticketing systems. Hey, Frank, one question I wanted to ask. You said the thing earlier of, hey, uh, you used the example of internet companies that had a website and then mobile companies, and then ultimately these things were subsumed back into they just are companies, right? Um, I guess I, I could all, maybe this is revisionist history, but I could always imagine a world in which information needed to exist on the internet. I grew up around this time, and so maybe it just came second nature to me to understand it, but I at least understood that uh, the, the endless access to information that the internet enabled, right? And I could think about that. And then mobile, once people poked around in mobile in the early 2000s, and then to some extent, the iPhone unlocked like all of the potential of it. But when you make that case that in 10 years, we're not talking about Web3 companies, right? And these are just embedded features do you think they're embedded features into all companies in some way shape or form do you think they're embedded features into some subset of companies that are using this to incentivize some level of ownership or speculation or whatever it is to pre-fund uh some type of community in some way like what do you actually think that the most ubiquitous case you could make for web3 what does it actually look like yeah so 
again, I am very much a pragmatist. Um, I am not about the stuff of science fiction, even though that's all I read, you know, so, uh, I do love science fiction and I find it a lot of fun. Um, but I, I'm really about problem statements and solution statements, right? Like that, that's everything that, that, you know, I, in, I invest in what QED invests in. It's really about saying, here's a profound problem, you know, that's not being solved well with today's companies, today's incumbents, today's infrastructure. And hopefully you have a new solution through a solution statement that's going to provide, you know, higher quality or lower cost or, you know, some new solution that solves that problem. So you, you almost have to ask yourself, like this new infrastructure layer, the new ethos, right? Because it's more than just about infrastructure. I think when we start talking about Web3, you're talking about many different things. Like we've talked about DAOs, we've talked about NFTs, we've talked about uh, tokenomics, we've talked about, you know, DeFi, like there are a lot of different corners of Web3. And in fact, we're going to see some companies be Web2.5 for a while, which is most of their infrastructure is Web2. And they're going to have some component of it that is tokenomics or some component that's an NFT or, you know, some component where customers can give input through being members of a DAO. But it might not be their core business. It might not be the core infrastructure. It might be a piece of it. So what's the broad-based case, though, for... I don't use Capital One because that implies uh, that implies DeFi in some meaningful way. And so what do you think, um, I don't know, for Nike or for uh, XCPG brand, Budweiser, or for whatever it is, like some company that's going to come on this journey, do you think it's going to apply to all of those in some way? And it's just going to be maybe smaller for some of those than it is for others? Or do you think it stays cornered off uh, to some native Web3 businesses plus, you know, a handful of others that come along for the ride? I think the concept of engaging your community and rewarding them with some form of uh, valuable liquid um you know, I, I don't want to just call them tokens, but reward system, I think is going to permeate a lot of businesses going forward, right? So if you think about Web2, Web2 is about uh, designing a product, um, manufacturing it and delivering it so that it could compete head to head against the incumbents and win, you know, for what it is the day that you're actually putting it into the marketplace, right? Web2 is about building the product first. And then if you're good at that, you end up with high NPS scores. And if you have high NPS scores, maybe if you're lucky, you can build a community around it of people who are recommending your product and actually almost being your marketing agents. That's Web 2. I think when we talk about Web 3, it's about creating champions within customers before the product is even built and creating a reward system that rewards the people that are actually helping you spread the word. And I think that a lot of companies are going to get uh, on this bandwagon and they're going to figure out creative ways of incenting communities, um, actually building diehard and loyal fan bases for whatever the products are, whatever the new launches are, um, engaging with the community in a way that you could hear the discourse from them and at the same time reward the people who are part of those communities. So it's community first and product second. I think you're going to see a lot of companies actually uh, take a play out of this playbook. And to me, that's actually Web3. And it's not just about DeFi and tokens and, and blockchains. Here's why I don't think it's Web3. 
because we do this already, right? Like this idea that we can give people an incentive to be early, to buy in early, to feel part of a broader community, to feel like they were first or second or whatever in the first thousand. Like we've done this, we've did this before the web to be very clear. Like this isn't necessarily an internet enabled thing in the first place, right? Like we give people early access if you're one of the first 500. We give you a discount. We give you a special color. We allow you to customize your thing, right? We, we give you a signed copy of the album that you purchase. There's no disagreement. Right? So these are like all mechanisms that we have had pre-internet, actually, in a funny way. And then we still had them in the internet. And then we had them all the way up until someone decided that the best way to do this in the future is a coin that you could sell to other people down the road. And I think that's the part that's really in play here is this idea of like, well, maybe this coin will go up in value and I can sell it in a highly liquid market. And to your own statement earlier, which I agree with, it's like, well, guess what that attracts? It attracts like the speculators. Pop called it, I really liked it actually. He called them, you know, mercenaries versus missionaries, right? It, it attracts the mercenaries and not the missionaries. And it's just true. It's like human behavior. I, I think Web3 is this thing we just made up. We just decided like, hey, here's this really cool technology that, by the way, was invented basically for digital money, right? If you go all the way back to like, why were we doing this in the first place? It was Satoshi trying to come up with like a government-less, permissionless money, which he or she successfully did, by the way, right? Like it actually kind of worked. Like Bitcoin is out there and it's got a few hundred billion dollar market cap. And then a bunch of people were like, wait a minute. What if we try and apply this to a whole bunch of different areas? Nobody's asking for it, by the way. Nobody's out there saying like, wouldn't it be better if it was like, we have this hammer, let's go find like a thousand more nails because it's like a cool computer science thing. And to me, that's the, like, Web3 is maybe the best branding in the world because for like all of the other web iterations, people were asking for it. Right? Like maybe not everybody was asking for it, but people were definitely like, why do I have to call you? Remember how annoying it was to have to like call everybody and they're like, why do I have to go to the library to like find this information out? Why do I have to pick up a telephone to call a business? Why do I have to send somebody a piece of mail? Like, why do I have to be at my desktop computer in my house to access these things? And there were all of these like very, fairly simple, I would argue, like easy to understand user problems to keep it, you know, in the products kind of frame of reference here. We're like, yeah, it actually would be a lot better if, you know, we gave you a phone that could access the same thing that your computer does. And like all these other things were solved for fairly established problems. And I don't know, somehow we decided to call that web one and web two, which I guess is like a good way of seeing like the evolution of the internet. And then we said, this is the third version of it. And that doesn't make any sense to me because it's not improving in any way, shape or form. The first two, besides creating this like, front run, odd, multi-level marketing, frankly, and, and I hate to use the term Ponzi scheme because it makes me sound like I'm crazy. But in reality, what I mean is like, it just creates this incentive structure for people to like rapidly get in early, pump up the value, at least the perceived value, and then sell. And that's what the tokenomics that exist today and have existed since we've tried this in a few different ways, they kind of almost all end up in that spectrum, right? It's like, Speculate early, get out at the top, run to the next one. So this is a, a 
uh, I won't say unpopular, but I might get the words wrong and I'm going to ask the audience to forgive me for it because uh, it, it's a controversial topic. Um, but the topic is whenever there's a new innovation, especially when there's money surrounding the new innovation, there's going to be somewhere, make up a number, 10% of people with the drive uh, and the intellect, the intelligence, the backgrounds to be able to take advantage of that new technology to be the leaders building something, right? So again, that's the elitist or arrogant way of looking at it, but there, there's going to be some small percentage of people that are going to be looking and using it this, this new technology to design new things. But within that 10%, Half the people are going to be altruistic and half the people are going to be out just for themselves. And the problem is when there's money involved and you have half of the people that are out for themselves, it dominates the narrative because it's not only half the activity, they rinse and repeat over and over and over and over again because it is easy to commit fraud. The base of the pyramid is easy to uh, get them to part with their money, which is really sad. There's more fraud in this space than in any space I've ever seen. And I ran a fraud department before. Like it is infuriating how easy it is to be a fraudster in this space and win, right? You could even raise your hand and say, I'm about to commit fraud. People will look at that and say, yeah, I hear that. Where do I put my money? Because I think I can make money before you defraud me. Yeah. I'm in that window where you take it that like little window. Yeah, totally. Right. But it, it's this really weird situation where. Now we have an innovation that by definition is digital programmable money, which means there's money involved. And if there's money involved, you have the 5% of the 10%, right? Half of the 10% that are out there just dominating the narrative. And you're seeing a lot of the negativity about all of the things that can go wrong with tokenomics, all of the things that can go wrong with rug pulls, all of the things that can go wrong with parting the base of the pyramid who are wide-eyed and they're looking at potential life-changing returns if they get it right. And they're throwing their money at these things, right? But the other 5% are altruistic in trying to actually innovate. You're seeing a lot of talent go into the space. If there's one thing that should make you bullish about it, if there's a bull case to be made, is that where talent goes, usually innovation follows, right? Something will be built of value with the amount of talent that's gone into the space. But Look, I, I am 100% on the same page as you are. Like if you just scan everything that's happening in the space, you're going to see 10 times as much negativity and things that are wrong or broken than you are things that are going right. The question is, is there something that's salvageable in there that turns into the innovation that has Web3 live up to its name? And, and I don't have an answer to that. I'm still a student, you know, trying to figure these things out. You know, I'm deep in the DeFi space. I'm deep in NFT communities. I'm actually working with some projects, trying to help them figure out how to build big, durable companies on the back of this fundraising event called an NFT Mint and how to return value back to the NFT holders. Like I'm actually working on that problem, uh, working with DAOs to try to figure out how do you actually kick people off the island, right? Which is really important if you're going to have good governance, right? DAOs aren't very good at that. Like, again, there are big fundamental issues, but, you know, it's worth exploring. Like, there's a lot of interesting things that are happening. And the question is, does something emerge to allow Web3 to live up to its name? The only, one, the only thing I'll touch on, we can jump because I, 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 this, like, the really smart 
people are spending time in it. Obviously, everybody likes to talk about that. Mark Andreessen likes to talk about that because it sounds smart and it does sound smart. I, I'm not disagreeing with that. Uh, my, my pushback to this would be two things, three things. One is part of the reason why there's so many smart people working in the space is because a lot of people got rich very fast, like very fast and made a lot of money. It's a great incentive system. <laughs> Unbelievable incentive system, right? And then a few people got very rich very quickly and you're looking at them going like, you, really? Like that fast? And then what happens is like a bunch of venture dollars chase it, right? And so then the money enters the system and actually like software engineers follow the money because like you got to, your, your alternative as a great software engineer is a very well-paid job, right? At Google or Facebook. And then, you know, I saw from some of our startups in our portfolio, like one of the companies, not now anymore, but like as of a year ago that was poaching people with these crazy compensation packages was Coinbase among others, right? So like, I think it's a little bit of a red herring of like, look at all these smart people as if they're doing it for free. They are not working for free, right? Like they are there chasing the money just like everybody else. And then the last piece is like, unlike the internet, where most of the like smart techie people were like, yeah, this is going to be pretty cool. There are a lot, and I'm not putting myself in this category, but there are a lot of very smart, successful technical people right? Like the CEO of Airbnb and Duskin Moskowitz and obviously like, you know, Aaron Levy at Box and a whole bunch of others who ping me on Twitter through direct messages because they don't want to talk about publicly who are like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe people are working on this thing. And like they work in technology and not just like dabble in technology, but these are like technology entrepreneurs who love technology, myself included, love technology. It's the only thing I spent time on. So I just like, doesn't make sense. The narrative from both sides actually makes sense. Both things can be true at the same time. You could have 99% noise and 1%, you know, being signal that something emerges and it doesn't transform the world into saying web three is the biggest thing ever, but something emerges of value, right? And if that number is 10% or 15%, then you have something that's transformative. If it's 1%, you know, it's marginal and you see, you know, something in the world that wasn't there before. It's just going to cause a hundred billion dollars in scams and destruction to find that 1% to get there. It's like the ROI is probably negative at this point. But hopefully you understand why I've thrown myself into this because either you could be a sideline skeptic or it's a very technical, um, you know, space where if you're not deep in the weeds and almost a practitioner. You don't actually understand what's going on. Oh, I totally agree. I, that's why I did it too. I was, I was interested. I wanted to learn about it actually. And the only way to learn about it is to do exactly what you're doing. I totally agree, which is you got to go talk to a people working on it. And by the way, like the first time I set up a wallet and the first time I decided that I was going to lend money, you know, through the Ave, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like moving money is a really intimidated thing, intimidating thing when you press a button and you don't know if it's going to get to the right place and you're playing with lots of zeros. Right. Um, like playing around in this space tells you a lot about, is it ready for prime time or not? And the answer is no. Right. Like, I don't think anyone would disagree. Like if you said, is, 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 is the web three ecosystem ready for the next billion people to be onboarded? Like, no, you know, there's just so much that has to catch up from a user interface and protections and, you know, all of the things that we're used to. But you're actually looking at the primitives being built. 
And once you understand that you're looking at the primitives being built that need to be assembled, kind of the Lego blocks that are eventually going to build something, as long as you can wrap your head around that, you then have to ask, are these primitives valuable? Are they more valuable than the infrastructure as it exists today? Can they solve problems in a different way that is superior to the way of solving it with the primitives that we have in Web2 in the incumbent ecosystem? I don't have answers to that, but without understanding the primitives and what's happening, I was a sideline skeptic. And now, you know, at least I can ask the right questions. I can help companies navigate, should you or should you not do this? And I'm connected enough in this space to at least see the innovations as they're starting to come up from the ground and as people are starting to question, like, should we be doing this? Yes, no. So in my journey, journey that, that's all it really is. Yeah, I, no, I, look, I think it's great that you're doing it. And uh, I had to do the same over the last few months just so I like knew kind of what I was talking about in this. Uh, I just wish we didn't call it Web3 with this like giant implication. Like it implies like, you know, some next step up and like to, you know to you and i we realize it's branding but to a lot of people are like well it's the next innovation of the web and it's like no it's not uh it would be great if we just called it an immutable public database i know it's a mouthful but like we would actually probably get to the answer a lot faster if you're like really excited about using this new technology it's called an immutable public database and if you just had to like say that over and over and over again. There'd be people like, wait, what's an immutable public database? Why do we need it? And we'd get we'd get to the answer a lot faster, but we call it Web3 and we put this like nice little pretty brand around it and we talk about it as like the next big thing because it's like a nice, I don't know, it's like a clever way of branding a immutable public database. And look, it's it's not lost on me that many venture capital firms, I will not name them, but many venture capital firms are PR machines that monetize through venture capital. Right. So the narrative actually matters quite a bit. And, you know, when it was called crypto, it ended up getting a bunch of negative branding for a whole bunch of reasons. And it needed a new name if there were any chance of it being accepted publicly as a bigger thing than just tokens. And, you know, I think the branding was deliberate. I think you can look at the origin of Web3, you know, who created it, where it came from, how it was spread. Um, but I, I think there is some PR about it to make it much more accepted. Like, of course, if there is a web one, if the, if there is a web two, then there must be a web three. So this is what web three is about, but don't mistake incentives, you know, for reality, you know, show me the incentive system. I'll tell you the behavior. Like that's a lot of what's going on. And web three is about a dozen different things, not three things or one thing. Like it's actually pretty complicated and that's why. You know, I stated this earlier, I find the ethos and the zeitgeist of what's going on more interesting maybe than the solutions that are at least present today. Web3 really should be machine learning applied to software. Like that's really what the next web is. If you think about the true innovation, like where all the like real cutting edge work is happening, it's really an ML. And, you know, I guess the ML people were too busy doing math and not enough time doing branding. Uh, and they missed their mark, you know, but like, think about it. I mean, like Google rebranded, it's like whole engineering focus around machine learning. Like you're seeing it pop up in day-to-day -day utility, both in the, just like pure web companies. And then obviously in the real world, like it'd be so much more exciting if we were just talking about web three, about machine learning than about tokens. <laughs>
so that'll do it for the 24th episode of Cartoon Avatars. Thanks to Zach, as as usual, for coming on, as well as Frank for talking through uh, all the crypto use cases, and uh, to Rashad for acting as producer and coming out from behind the uh, the camera. Rashad, how uh, how was it coming on for the first time? I got the stage fright for sure, uh, but you're used to you're used to being uh, at this point, you know, the TikTok guy, the video people know you at this point, right? I get to do as many takes as possible. It is funny though uh ever since like i've been involved with this podcast uh like on the production side or whatever i like randomly as a byproduct of just like helping out with stuff behind the scenes know a ton about like crypto now and finance and so all my friends who i was friends with before i joined and started this job uh that like know me from before like I'll just like drop random like knowledge bombs that like whatever Weinberg or any of our guests have, and they're like, Dude, yeah, what the yeah it's certainly not. Yeah, it's certainly not the knowledge bombs coming from me. Yeah, any of the guests or Weinberg or any. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'll share some of your hot takes, and like the, I'll share it as like you know. I mean, that's half the reason people listen to podcasts, anyways. It's just to regurgitate it and sound smart amongst their friends. Yeah. Well. Well. Uh, thanks for doing it. Only in one one cut, and I only had to call you uh, one insult to uh to get you to uh to come on and do this so yeah well uh it's different it's different than when you're doing all the tiktok dances a little bit right this is a more of like a live broadcast yeah we're getting better right the early days it was definitely not a live broadcast now uh i think we're pretty close to what you see is what you get so uh we should do an outtakes at some point uh bloopers or whatever real i I still had that compilation before you killed zach and nikita off the show of like I had this compilation of Zach's, uh, Zach's, can we cut this is, you know, yeah. like every time he'd be like, can we cut this? Or actually, I'd rather not. Can we say that a little bit differently? Like for Weinberg, I have like, I mean, there's a super cut to be done of like, that's not true. That That's that's just not true when he's like right. disagreeing with people <laughs> or there's but, anyone when he's like, but like no, <laughs> <laughs> there's a funny one where he's like, uh, and and guns and guns. <laughs> yeah, my favorite thing that Weinberg does is when he like he'll like under his breath be like, "Oh yeah, like losing billions of dollars, like that's not a big deal." But but like you know, and he'll just like continue on the argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for the Sam Blessing podcast that'll be coming out uh, oh, at some know. point here. But yeah, yeah. No, I mean, what's a few billion dollars lost among friends? But yeah, like real, like human times, like that we actually live in, like the real world. But like, yeah, that's that's not important. Like for the sake of the yeah, <laughs> we're teasing that one. At some point, people will hear it. I uh, yeah, that's been a uh, that's been a little bit of an exercise to get that one uh, to a listenable listenable state. So yeah. uh, well, thanks everyone for joining. We'll see, we'll see people next week, episode twenty five uh, of Cartoon Avatars. Thank you.